point is that which has no part. What an absolutely bonkers way to start a book. But that's Euclid's elements for you. Let's start the whole thing off with a negative, Euclid apparently told himself. He's like, well, look, uh, let me tell you what the point is. Think of things that have parts. It's not that. Well, it's all the other things. Stuff that don't have parts. That's what a point is. Uh, that's the very first sentence of the elements. Well, it's pretty weird, isn't it? That the very first thing that you introduce is in fact defined by exclusion in terms of what it is not. Quite perplexing and not very illuminating, you might say. Well, in any case, that's just uh, an amusing observation, but there are important interpretive issues at stake with regard to these definitions. In fact, the first two lines of Euclid's elements are, I would say, perhaps the most misunderstood sentences in the entire work. So they define the concept of a point and a line. A point is that which has no part. A line is a length without breadth. We can interpret this as saying that a line is one-dimensional and a point is zero-dimensional. Well, here's how people misunderstand it. They say, aha, told you, geometry is not about physical things. It's about objects in some ideal realm, just like Plato said. Because if you draw a line with a pen, for example, well, it's always going to have some breadth, you know, no matter how thin it may be. No physical objects can ever be breathless length. So this proves that Euclid was not talking about physical space. People conclude, aha, Euclid's geometry is divorced from reality. In my opinion, that's a terrible argument. It makes no sense. It's demonstrably false, in fact. And you hear it repeated again and again, unfortunately. Some ancient philosophers made this, this argument. Aristotle mentions it in the metaphysics. Still, today, many modern scholars, they walk right into this fallacy all the time. Don't worry, though, I'm here to save you from this mistake. There is no inconsistency between Euclid's definition and physicalist view of geometry. On the contrary, these kinds of idealizations are an essential part of any physical theory. Think about it. Ptolemy, the astronomer, for instance, treats the moon as a point for the purposes of many of his demonstrations. That's common practice of what you do all the time in physics, that kind of stuff. Obviously, no one would infer from this that Ptolemy therefore believes that the moon is a mathematical point that has no extension and no part. It's ridiculous. The convention of treating the moon as a point is a common sense idealization. It's the only sensible thing to do for many mathematical purposes, regardless of whatever you think about the, the actual body of the moon or how you estimate its size. It doesn't matter. You treat it as if it were a point uh, for many calculations. It's the same in, uh, for instance, Archimedes' work on levers, the lever arm. It is a weightless mathematical line and the weights are applied at mathematical points. Those kinds of idealizations are unequivocally used all the time without further ado in applied mathematics. Just as we do today, so also in Greek times, it's just the obvious way to do mathematical physics. It makes no sense, therefore, to take that kind of stuff, to be inconsistent with a physicalist view of, ge of geometry. The idea of treating things as if they were breathless or, or uh, that points have no extension. So those kinds of things are, in fact, exactly the standard assumptions that you would expect in any physical geometry, just as you find it all the time in any mathematical theory that treats the physical world. So, in fact, if the standard argument is right, 
that Euclid's definitions of a point and a line prove that his geometry is divorced from physical reality, if that argument is correct, then that same argument would equally prove that the Greeks did not intend their astronomy or their statics to apply to the physical world either. Ptolemy wasn't talking about the actual heavenly bodies in his work. Archimedes wasn't talking about actual physical objects in his mechanics. Obviously, that is absolutely ridiculous. Clearly, Ptolemy was talking about the actual moon, even though it treated as a point. Clearly, Archimedes was talking about actual physical things in his mechanics, even though he treated them as points and lines in a mathematical sense. So, therefore, it is madness to infer from Euclid's definition that he thinks geometry is non-physical. In fact, uh, on the, on the, it's precisely the other way around. It is precisely those people who do mathematics of physical world who make those kinds of idealizations. So Euclid fits like a glove with what physical uh, reasoning always involves. It is much better to read Euclid's definitions as specifications of idealizations that are made in geometry rather than as claims about the ultimate nature of geometrical objects. In fact, you can find support for this interpretation in Asian sources. Hiram, for instance, clearly takes such a view. Here's what he writes. Already in ordinary language, we have the notion of a line as something which has only length, but not at the same time width and thickness. For we say a road of 50 states, and we concern ourselves with the length only, but not at the same time with its width. So there in, the, in this source from here, and we have obviously the identification of geometry with everyday physical objects is perfectly evident. The, the allegedly platonic or ontological aspects of the definition of a line it is really just a common sense matter of simplifying assumptions, directing attention only to the relevant aspects of the situation. Like when you're thinking about lines, you're only concerned with the length and not with the thickness. But that is not because lines really are uh, these ghostly entities that is just more like a road or something where you don't care about how wide it is when you're talking about how, how far you have to travel. That makes a lot of sense to interpret Euclid along the same lines. And Proclus makes the same point as Hieron. In fact, he also uses the example of a road. He attributes this view to the followers of Apollonius. This is quite interesting. In other words, uh, Proclus puts this view right at the mainstream of Greek geometry at its peak. Followers of Apollonius. Those people were the uh, establishment, you know. Where Hieron and Proclus, those are later commentators, you know, you can kind of take it or leave it, what they're saying. But, well, if the followers of Apollonius said this kind of stuff, well, then it's right at the, at the heart and soul of Greek geometry. You know, Hieron well, a bit later, but there was still a mathematical author. So we see that it is the mathematicians who were the ones who thought a road was a good example of a line. This idea about how neglecting the width. Of course, a road has width. You just disregard I me. Mean, is that way in which you think about the concept of a line? That was something that evidently many mathematicians did. The followers of Apollonius, Hieron. Meanwhile, People who try to use definitions to drive a wedge between mathematics and physical reality try to separate these things. The authors who make that kind of point are philosophical authors. Typical, isn't it? Philosophers, you know, to focus on the first two lines of Euclid and try to dismiss the relevance or status of geometry on those grounds. Perhaps uh, these lazy non-mathematicians, they didn't even make it for, past the first page of Euclid, you know. 
How convenient that they immediately found an excuse to dismiss geometry based on the first two definitions. Very convenient that their objective analysis just happened to justify ignoring all technical mathematics, which were probably disinclined to concern themselves with uh, in any way. Such a motivation is quite transparent uh, in at least uh, one of these philosophical authors, uh, Sextus Empiricus, he gives probably the most extensive articulation of this idea that the first definition of Euclid undermines the credibility of mathematics. In fact, the very title of his work is Against the Mathematicians. The mathematicians talk idly, he accuses, for the straight line shown to us on the board has length of breadth, whereas the straight line conceived by them is length without breadth. Gotcha, huh? Well, you can decide for yourself if you think Sextus Empiricus is a razor-sharp philosophical mind who has outsmarted all the mathematicians, or whether he's a guy who doesn't like mathematics and he wants to rationalize his own ignorance. Those of us who read Euclid beyond the first page quickly realize that there is a further compelling argument for why one must not make too much of this alleged ontological import of Euclid's definitions of point and line. Namely, these definitions are the most extraneous part of the elements, the least essential part of the elements. The elements is obviously very uh, carefully constructed logical theory. Um, almost every statement is a carefully formulated to correspond precisely to the justification of specific inferences in deductive proofs. Obviously, postulates and propositions are of this type and so are many definitions, like the definition of a circle, for instance, is used in the very first proposition to infer that since two line segments are radii of the same circle, they must be equal, and so on. The definitions of point or lines are not like that. These definitions serve no direct role in the deductive structure of the theory. They are basically ornamental. They are the most inconsequential part of the entire element, since they are never actually used in any proof, unlike the important definition or unlike the postulates. So how ironic then that those are the precise lines that are always cited as virtually the only textual evidence in mathematical sources of the alleged anti-physicalist tendencies in Greek geometry. In fact, these definitions of point and line may not even have been part of Euclid's original text of the elements at all. The version of the elements that we have have been edited, unfortunately. When Euclid wrote it, it was a sophisticated analysis of the foundations of geometry. Its readers were high-level mathematicians. Later, it became a textbook for schools. Editors interfered to make it more accessible, possibly adding, for instance, the first couple of definitions, for example, is especially clear with respect to definition 4 of the elements, the definition of a straight line. Here's what it says. A straight line is a line which lies evenly with the points on itself. This definition is meaningless drivel. What does it mean to lie evenly with itself? What about a circle, for example? Do the, is the curve of a circle, do the points of a circle lie evenly with themselves? I mean, in some sense, it's sort of, uh, you know, the... The, the curve of the circle is sort of even, right? Isn't it? It's kind of symmetric. It is. Uh, so does that mean that it lies evenly with itself? Well, apparently not, because it's not a straight line, you know. So whatever the concept of lying evenly with itself means, it doesn't include 
the circumference of a circle, even though that in some sense can be regarded as a... So you see how the, the idea of lying evenly with itself is much too vague to be useful in mathematics, because we, uh, whether or not it applies to a circle, for instance, it is not it is not clear because it is the 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 thing is just a bunch of words and nobody knows what uh, how to actually specify in any concrete mathematical sense what they are supposed to mean how can such a masterful work euclid's great elements is clearly written by a top quality mathematician full of extremely sophisticated stuff how can such a work open with junk like this that doesn't really mean anything vague phrases about lying evenly with itself, which is a completely uh, nebulous concept, so it's difficult to pin down. Well, there's a compelling answer to this conundrum. How can the elements be bo have both excellent parts and then these nonsensical parts? Uh, Lucy Russo is a fun guy, uh, a historian who has written about this, and here's his proposal. Euclid didn't define straight line at all. Euclid's focus was on the overall deductive structure of geometry, for this purpose, the definition of straight line is essentially irrelevant. Uh, indeed, the utterly useless definition for of the elements is indeed never used in any proof, just as the definition of point and line is never used in any proof. So that's showing that they are extraneous to the logical argument. Archimedes said something about straight lines. Probably he agreed with Euclid as far as the elements were concerned, that it, the, the, there's no point in defining the straight line in that context because it doesn't enter into any other proof. However, in the course of other researches that Archimedes was involved in, he found himself needing the assumption that among all lines or curve with the same endpoints, the straight line between those two points has the least length, is the minimum distance between these two points. He therefore... Archimedes stated this property of a straight line as a postulate in this context where it was needed. The Hellenistic era of Greek antiquity, which included Euclid and Archimedes, was one of superb intellectual quality. Unfortunately, that did not last forever. Here on Alexandria, I lived about 300 years later, a much dumber time. Fewer people were capable of appreciating the, the great accomplishments of the Hellenistic era. Hieron, he was one of the best of his generation. He could uh, at least glimpse some of the greatness of the past, and he tried his best to revive it. To this end, Hieron, he tried to make Euclid's elements more accessible to a less sophisticated audience who didn't have the background knowledge and understanding that Euclid's original readers would have had. And so he therefore wrote commentaries on Euclid. He tried to explain the meaning of the text, to these new readers who were more ignorant of geometry, it was necessary to explain, for example, what a straight line is. Here, on realized that Archimedes' postulate about the line as the shortest distance captured well the essence of a straight line. However, it is not itself suitable as a definition. A line should have the property of being the shortest distance between any two of its points. It should not be phrased in terms of only two fixed points, like Archimedes was talking about the shortest distance between uh, two endpoints, but uh, to test for straightness, you, you need to uh, specify that a line is straight if, for any two points on that line, it's the shortest path between them. So you recall that Archimedes was not trying to define a straight line. He was Archimedes was only trying to make explicit an 
particular assumption about straight lines that were particularly relevant in one particular work. To adapt Archimedes' idea into a definition, which it was originally not, Hieron would have to reframe it. So he had to explain that, uh, I quote him here, a straight line is a line which uniformly in respect to all its points lies upright and stretched to the utmost towards the ends such that given two points it is the shortest of the lines having them as ends. In this passage you have this phrase uniformly. It obviously refers to the universality of the shortest distance property. The point of this phrase is to highlight that this property applies to any two points on the line. This is what later becomes Euclid's phrase, evenly with the points on itself. So the original purpose of this phrase was to say that the distance minimization property of the straight line holds for any pair of points on the line. That is to say, the property holds uniformly or evenly across the entire line, not only for the end points. The definition in the elements is a mutilated version of what Heron said. Heron's point is that no matter which two points on the curve you pick, the straight line is always the shortest path between them. You now the mutilated version ignores the path that part of the statement that's about the shortest distance. It distorts the part about it applying across all points into this vague phrase about the evenness of all points. How did this corruption occur? To understand this, we need to fast forward another 300 years. Intellectual quality has now plunged deeper still. Geometry is in the hand of rank fools. Euclid's Elements was once written for connoisseurs of mathematical subtlety, but now it is used by schoolboys who rarely get past book one, and they learn that only by mindless root memorization time-tested way, still in widespread use today for that matter, to teach advanced materials to students who don't have the capacity to actually understand anything, is to have them blindly memorize a bunch of definitions of terms. In this context, therefore, there is a need for an addition of the elements which includes many definitions of basic terms which must be short and memorizable and they don't need to make mathematical sense. People just need something to memorize for the sake of uh, pseudo-learning, proxy learning. They're not going to understand mathematics anyway. Just have them regurgitate things. In this era of third-rate minds, some compiler set out to put together an addition of the elements that would satisfy these conditions. Here on commentary of the elements, it was appealing in this context because it affords opportunities to focus on trivial verbiage instead of difficult mathematics. So Heron's description of a straight line, something that this compiler wanted to use, but even Heron's description is too complicated, it's too long to memorize as a sound bite, and the mathematical points it makes is moderately sophisticated, it's stuff about quantifying over all the points on the line. The compiler, therefore, uh, makes the decision to simply cut off Heron's description after the bit about uniformly in respect to all its points. And this solves all the problems for this compiler, you know. The definition becomes shorter and easier. The only drawback is that the definition becomes utter and complete nonsense, just as we find it in Euclid, it doesn't make any sense. However, since the whole purpose of this compiler 
I was in any case nothing but blind memorization. It doesn't matter anymore to him that the definition doesn't make mathematical sense or cannot ever be used in any mathematical proof. So that is how the ridiculous definition 4 ended up in Euclid's elements, so-called Euclid's elements, which is actually not in Euclid's. It's a mutilated version of what was once a good definition, that of Hiram. All of this is according to Rousseau's hypothesis, which is uh, compelling, in my opinion. On Rousseau also observes in the works of other great Greek mathematicians like Archimedes and Apollonius, who belong to the same tradition as Euclid, is lived approximately at the same time, there is nothing analogous to those uh, pseudo-definitions of fundamental geometrical entities containing the elements, like a line and point and straight line. Instead, the introduction of terms implicitly defined through postulates is frequent. It's a standard geometrical practice. So that supports the hypothesis that the elements was corrupted due to its association with introductory teaching. The more advanced works remain more or less untampered with, whereas the, uh, unfortunately, elements suffered at the hands of teachers. And this is why these, uh, the worst part of the elements, uh, the very first few definitions, are so uh, lousy. Okay, so but let's say that we do want a definition of a straight line, which is consistent with Greek geometry. Not a stupid pseudo-definition like the fake one in the Euclid's elements, but a good definition. How would that go? I would propose defining a straight line as follows. A straight line is the path of a stretched string. In other words, a straight line is a curve that doesn't change shape when you pull the endpoints, like a piece of string. And this is closely related to the notion of the shortest distance between two points. It's related, but it's not equivalent. To get to the bottom of the notion of straightness, it is useful to consider not only the usual plane, the flat plane of Euclid, but also other surfaces. Euclid's geometry is the geometry of a flat plane, a flat piece of paper, so to speak. Other surfaces have other geometries. A cylinder, for instance, like a Pringles can. It has its own geometry, Pringles lines, Pringles triangles. To appreciate the geometry of a surface, we should forget for a moment that it's located in three-dimensional space. We should look at it through the eyes of a little bug who crawls around on the surface and thinks about its geometry on the surface only, who cannot leave the surface, is unaware of any other space beyond the surface. You can think of, for instance, uh, those little water striders that you see running across the surfaces of ponds. They know the surface of the pond ever so well. They can feel any little movement on it, their little spidery legs. However, they are quite oblivious to the existence of a third dimension outside of their surface world that they live on. And this makes the water strider an easy prey for a bird or a fish that strikes without first upsetting the surface of the water. So we can think of intrinsic geometry of surfaces in this way. This forces us to realize that, in fact, many things that we take for granted as obvious objective truths in, in geometry are really a lot more specific to our mental constitution and our conscious assumptions than we realize. In some ways, we are as ignorant of our own limitations as the water strider. Let's transport ourselves into the cylinder world 
uh, to practice seeing geometry from a different point of view like this. On a cylinder, there are stretched string curves that are not the shortest path between its two endpoints. If you wrap a shoelace around a Pringles can, you can make various uh, spirals that are stretched strings. You pull the endpoints, it doesn't move. It's completely uh, tightly stretched. So that makes it a, a line then, according to my definition of a straight line. So these are uh, make a helix shape or a corkscrew, as it were. It, but uh, they are not the shortest distance between their endpoints, though, even though they are stretched strings. In, even if you have to st stay on the surface of the cylinder, you can still get from one endpoint to the other of this corkscrew curve uh, more directly than by means of the spiral. You know, you can just go straight up instead of around and around and then hit the endpoint, right? So uh, it's kind of uh, the, the spiral curve is sort of wasting its effort, so to speak, by going around several times before reaching the endpoint. So in, from that point of view, then, stretch string lines and shortest distance lines are not the same thing. So this example shows the... This uh, shoelace wrapped around a Pringles can, it is a stretched string line, but it's not the shortest distance line because it's not the quickest way from between the two endpoints. So, in a way, you might say, actually, it is the stretched string idea that gets it right, so to speak. Uh, because uh, one reason for this is that uh, it makes straightness a local property. We can alter the distance characterization of straightness to be local as well, then we could say a curve is a locally shortest path if for any given point on the curve there's a neighborhood around that point, if you zoom in around the, close enough around that point, then uh, within that neighborhood the distance along the curve between any two points on the curve is uh, the shortest possible distance between those points. So this, in fact, of course, with that way of phrasing it, makes, uh, captures the same straight lines as the stretch string definition. Being a stretch string is the same thing as being locally shortest, a locally shortest path. You know, pulling the endpoints of a string ensures that it kind of uh, optimizes the, the short, you know, the length of the string, right? That's the if the, the string isn't fully stretched yet, pulling the endpoints is going to straighten it out. It's going to choose a quicker path, a shorter path. But that is a local process and uh, that will ensure that uh, there are no, uh, no slack in the rope, in the, in the string between nearby points. But, however, it will not ensure that it is the quickest path between the two endpoints of the string, because that can depend on whatever it did in between various loops and stuff. So this is why a stretch string and locally shortest path, those are equivalent conditions locally. If you zoom in to a small area, then they come to the same thing. However, if you zoom out and look at points that are far apart, then those two definitions do not necessarily agree with each other, then stretch string and shortest distance can give different answers just as on the, uh, on the surface of the cylinder. So 
In fact, straight lines can also be defined another way, as curves possessing half-turn symmetry about every point. A curve has half-turn symmetry if, for any given point P on the curve, there is a neighborhood around that point such that when this neighborhood is rotated about P, with half the angle measured around P, the curve ends up on top of itself. So you might think of it more loosely as the curve is straight if it, as it so to speak, uh, cuts angles in half or leaves the same amount of space on either side. Here's a way to think about this in physical terms. It is the so-called ribbon test that you can use to test for this kind of straightness. If a ribbon or a band can be laid flatly along the curve without creasing on either side, then the curve is straight because then it has you know, equal space on the left side and on the right side, so to speak. If the band needs to crease up, that indicates that the amount of space on one side is different than the amount of space on the other. Try it on your Pringles can. You can use a measuring tape, for instance, like those uh, free paper measuring tapes that you can get at the hardware store or furniture store. That's your ribbon. Try wrapping that around a Pringles can. Some ways of wrapping this band makes it lay uh, flat against the surface. Those are straight lines. And there are other ways of wrapping the band which makes it crease up on one side or the other. Those are not straight lines. They do not leave the same amount of space on either side. Here's a fun thing to investigate and think about. So we have now defined straight lines on Pringle cans in two different ways. One in terms of the stretch string, like a shoelace, and the other one in terms of the flat ribbon, like a measuring tape. Are those two the same? Are there some lines that are shoelace straight, but not ribbon straight, or the other way around? I'll leave that to you to explore. All right, so we have two notions of straightness then. In fact, both of them get at something very fundamental. The stretch string idea. It highlights the concept of straightness as minimization or a tight fit. This idea is reflected in many real-world occurrences of straightness. For instance, the path of a cross-Atlantic flight. You know that when you look at the path on a map, the flight tracker, it looks curved. It looks like you're flying from Paris up towards the North Pole and then back down again to New York. Why didn't you go straight across, so to speak? Of course, the path is in fact straight. It only looks curved uh, because the map is an imperfect uh, representation. If you have a globe, uh, you can stretch a string between Paris and New York and you can feel for yourself that the shortest path does indeed go up towards the North Pole. And yet the path is straight according to the stretch string definition. Of course, the stretch string is a minimization kind of definition. Of course, you choose the quickest path, the minimum path, and the stretch string corresponds to that idea. We also have the second idea of straightness. Straightness meaning the same amount of stuff on both sides. And this is also reflected in familiar situations. For instance, when you fold a piece of paper, the edge is straight. After you folded the paper, it always makes a straight edge and not a, a curved one. Why is that? It doesn't have to do with stretch strings. It doesn't have to do with least distances or minimization. 
Instead, it has to do with sameness on both sides, symmetry. To fold something up, you match up points on one side of the, of the, uh, of the fold with points on the other. It's a one-to-one correspondence. Folding is only possible if the two halves are precisely equal. There's also a kind of a three-dimensional version of this, namely the axis of rotation. When a solid body is rotated, like the dinner spit at a Middle Eastern restaurant or a basketball spinning on your fingertip, the axis of rotation is a straight line. Why is that? Well, it's again because of the sameness on all sides. The, the moving parts have to fit into each other's space. So they have to be equal on either side, all the way around. Here's another example from engineering. Mirrors are made flat by rubbing two of them against each other face to face with a fine sand or some other polishing agent uh, applied in between. This as well embodies the idea of flatness or straightness as equivalent to sameness on both sides. You know, you make the two mirrors uh, kind of converge towards each other's uh, surfaces, right? Any unevenness is being polished away. Um, so, so that works mutually for both of the mirrors, and that's uh, eventually you get two things that are in perfect agreement with one another, just like two straight lines fit perfectly. Those, those are the only kinds of shapes that you can lay flat like that and and uh, not have any additional friction left. So uh, here's another example. Rowing a boat. You go straight in a rowboat if you apply equal force to each oar. This is again symmetry straightness. It's not stretch string straightness. It's not built into the very rowing process that the path that you're rowing, that that's necessarily corresponds to the shortest distance between the endpoints of the journey. Well, that's not automatic. However, what is built into the very act of rowing is, uh, in, when you row this way with equal force on equal, equal side, is that you leave equal amounts of space on either side. So you're creating a, uh, a path that must be straight for symmetry reasons. Light rays are straight. This is more like the stretch string again. Light cares about minimizing the time of travel, so to speak, just like the airline. The airline stretched the string across the globe to find out how to fly from Paris to New York, and in doing so, they also tightened their purse strings, so to speak, with the same move, because the shortest path is also the cheapest path. Light is a bit of a penny pincher as well, it would seem. Or it is perhaps impatient, because light chooses the quickest path. For instance, if light has to go from point A to point B via a flat mirror, it chooses to bounce off uh, the point on the mirror that makes the total distance as short as possible. We can reproduce that path with a stretched string. Suppose A and B are two points on a wooden table, let's say, so you can hammer two nails into those points. One of the edges of the table we can regard as a mirror. Now we can take a vertical metal bar and put it against the edge of the table, and we wrap a string from A, the nail at A, around the metal bar at the end of the table, and then back to B, the other nail. 
and now you pull the string as tight as you can so it's attached to A and B and you pull it. Well, the, this metal bar forces the string to go to the edge of the table and back because you, you know, but however the bar it can move along the edge of the table so when we pull the string we're forcing this bar into a particular position namely the position that minimizes the total distance and the path of the string in, when, that you get this way is the same as the path of light between these points via a mirror at the edge of the table so if you don't believe me, you can try this out with a laser pointer and stuff. So light is like stretched strings, is what we have proved with this experiment. And indeed, the artists use this sometimes. They pull strings to simulate light rays in order to get vantage points and perspectives uh, just right. So what I'm trying to emphasize with these examples is how thinking about what straightness means is connected to many aspects of culture and experience. Isn't it fascinating how the mathematical notion of straightness is a sort of root of all these diverse phenomena? Once you've read the elements, you see geometry everywhere. Flight paths, downer spits, spinning basketball, light and mirrors, rowboats and pringle scans, and so forth. Anytime you encounter these things, you will go, aha, of course, uh, this reminds me of Euclid's definition 4. You can also extend these ideas to more uh, exotic uh, examples. So the, the idea of a straightness uh, corresponding to a stretched string that I have introduced, it also generalizes well to other strange kinds of surfaces that are not homogeneous. The examples we have looked at so far, the flat plane, the cylinder, the sphere, they are all homogeneous surfaces because every point is like every other point on that surface. If you... Uh, cut out a piece of the surface, it fits on top of any other part of that surface. But some surfaces are not like that. For instance, the surface of a human face. There are regions of different curvatures, as we say in mathematics, this is a technical term for that. A flat piece of paper has zero curvature, it is not curved at all. A ball has positive curvature. It curves the same way in all directions. This is why it has a positive value, greater than zero value. A saddle is an example of surface with negative curvature. It curves in different ways in different directions. The saddle for uh, riding a horse, it curves upwards along the spine of the horse and downwards where your legs go. So they have two opposite directions of curving, making the curvature negative, a negative number. So the human face has both negative and positive curvatures. Some parts are like a saddle. For instance, the side of the nose or the area just below your mouth. If you put your finger there and you run it uh, sort of top to bottom, then it curves one way. And if you run it side to side, it curves the other way. So those are regions with negative curvature, like a saddle. Other parts of the human face have positive curvature, like a ball. For instance, the chin and the cheeks. There, the surface curves the same way, no matter which direction you run your finger. It's just like a, like a ball. Felix Klein, a 19th century mathematician, he thought that this might be the key to a mathematical analysis of the elusive concept of human beauty. So the face has regions of positive curvature and regions of negative curvature, like we just observed. 
And also then, there will, because of this, be a dividing line running between these two regions that delineates one region from the other. The boundary between those two. So this line goes between the cheek and the nose, it goes between the lips and the chin, and it goes up again on the other side of the face. So Felix Klein, he drew this line, the line of zero curvature, on a classical uh, sculpture, the uh, Apollo Belvedere sculpture. You can Google that, Felix Klein, Apollo Belvedere, and you can see uh, photos of this. Uh, this thing is still, uh, this model still uh, lives. Felix Klein, he was hoping that a simple pattern would emerge that would explain the beauty of this classical sculpture. It didn't work. No such pattern was discernible. But it makes for a good story. If you ask me, it's also a good uh, piece of uh, first date mathematics, you might call it. You can explain this idea to your date over some glasses of wine. You know, you slowly reach out, you sensually trace these mathematical curves on their face and so on. It's great stuff. You know. Anyway, where were we? Let's see now. So I wanted to discuss how the notion of uh, straightness extends to these other kinds of surfaces, surfaces with variable uh, curvature. We can still say that straight lines are stretch strings. We often call them geodesics rather than straight lines in such cases. But the stretch string idea is still the same. Here are some examples of this. Think of uh, bandaging an injured limb. The bandage needs to be tightly wrapped. This means that it must follow a geodesic path, a stretch string path. The bandage is a straight line in the sense that it is a stretch string. So it must always take the locally shortest distance. Of course, not the shortest distance overall, because it goes around and around. Nevertheless, the shortest distance between any two nearby points on the path of the bandage, because if it was not like that, then it would create slack. And, well, that would be... You wouldn't want that with your bandage, that it is loose uh, somewhere. So shortest distance, stretch string, uh, those are uh, that idea of straightness is involved in wrapping a bandage around your injured limb. Here's another example. The heart, it beats through the contraction of muscular threads along its surface. These threads they must be geodesics. They must be stretch string paths. Because uh, the, the heart beats by contracting the threads. If the muscular threads therefore were not positioned along geodesic path, the stretch string path, then when the threads were, would contract, they would just slide around on the surface of the heart instead of applying pressure to contract the heart so that the blood would be pumped out. A human heart is carefully designed with this geometry in mind. If it wasn't, we would all die very quickly. So the stretch string notion of straightness is truly a matter of life and death. Thank you.